Welcome to Financial Frameworks, where our goal is to increase your financial decision-making skills by combining solid fundamentals with what you already know. Feedback from the last podcast contains some questions that looked at savings and investing as if they were completely different tasks that have no relationship to each other, like a fork in the road, rather than the way I look at it as different stores on the same street. Looking at how to save and where to put savings separately from figuring out what to invest in would never have occurred to me. They always seemed like different points on a spectrum, all part and parcel of growing one's wealth. So this podcast will first continue examining margin of safety by providing another way to value a company or a stock with a margin of safety built in. That was what I promised at the end of the last podcast. And then I'll add some insights that I think are useful on how savings and investing decisions are similar to safety. Part of that discussion will be to ask you to consider in your own decisions how an often unexamined bias, loss aversion, plays a part. Margin of safety, another way to value a company that builds it in. In previous podcasts, I talked about Benjamin Graham's emphasis on having a margin of safety when investing, and I described two basic ways to assess margin of safety by looking at the asset, having a substantial amount of short-term assets like cash or receivables that exceed liabilities by a significant amount. The second method is to buy the asset knowing that the price is less than the true worth of the asset. We use the discounted cash flow method to implement the second and to value a company and see if their value is greater than the current market price. And I used Berkshire Hathaway and Delta Airlines as examples in podcasts 28 and 29. And you can listen to them if you have any questions about that. Today, we'll look at tools developed by Professor Bruce Greenwald of the Heilbrunn Center for Graham and Dodd Investing at Columbia University, Benjamin Graham's academic home. These tools, according to Professor Greenwald, translate Graham's value investing principles into techniques that better fit current financial market conditions. Professor Greenwald notes that when Graham started out in the 1930s, there was very little regulated reporting required from publicly held corporations. Translate regulated into meaning required, comprehensive, and accurate. That is not true today. So Professor Greenwald's methods assume greater availability of increased and standardized financial reporting, more accurate non-financial data about companies, and increased training of both professional and non-professional investors. That's a big difference. Professor Greenwald still believes that Graham's principles, adequate return and safety of principle, can be met and individual investors can find value and wealth in finding undervalued companies but with a different set of lenses. This podcast introduces his logic and his lenses for your and my use, and we'll discuss his tools in much more detail with specific examples in the following podcast. First, Professor Greenwald recommends breaking the process of valuing a company to find its true value, or in Graham and Dodd terms, its intrinsic value, into three parts. Number one, he believes the asset should be valued first. Number two, Next, we should understand how to value current earnings, or in his terms, earning power value. And finally, we would separately calculate a company's potential growth. 
if you think about it briefly, this makes a lot of sense because each category has different qualities and in money terms, they behave differently. Assets are things that are stated or represented at a point in time and can usually be assessed accurately from financial statements. Cash is cash, securities are listed at market value and so on. The second category, earnings, are dollars coming through the door over a period of time and will be estimated with some less accuracy than say accounting for the value of current assets at book value. In terms of revenues or earnings, different industries book sales in different ways. Accounting adjustments like depreciation need to be factored in. Some companies have a lot of capital expenditures. Some industries have fewer capital expenditures. And not all analysts account for depreciation or capital expenditures the same. So valuation calculations have to include both these differences and also what it will cost the company to generate these earnings. As with assets, the information needed to make the calculation is available in financial statements, but earnings require more assumptions. And remember, category number two is current earnings. We're not talking about future earnings. Which brings us to the third category, to estimate the value of earnings growth. Professor Greenwald states that there are two reasons for doing this separately. First, it's difficult to estimate future earnings for extended time periods. And let's say that your projection or my projection is off by a small percentage for year one or year two, that will be magnified into a larger amount in year five or year 10. For this reason alone, the possibility that estimates might be faulty, the data or projections are kept separate so they don't muddy the value of the first two calculations. His second reason for separating earnings growth is more interesting. In his words, in many circumstances, growth in sales and even growth in earnings add nothing to a firm's intrinsic value. He then acknowledges that most of us buy something because we expect it to grow and we focus on that anticipated growth. His underlying point is to separate what causes a business to grow, its assets and its current earnings, from the growth that we want to see in that business. He argues, like Graham and Dodd, that the first two categories, assets and current earnings, are the two things that are the fundamental source of insight into a business's value, and that's what creates the margin of safety. This may seem like a subtle distinction, but it's not. In common sense terms, he's basically saying, look at what the business and its asset base are doing today. Check the asset and earnings number and ask if you believe the business will continue in this fashion and repeat this performance. The answer to those questions give us a solid foundation for valuing the current state of the business. With that in hand, then we look at how best to estimate future growth in a clear and methodical way. If you think about it for a minute, this is a very solid way to bake margin of safety into our analysis of valuing a company. And also let me make it clear that this process is not saying don't measure or estimate future growth. It's just being very clear and careful when figuring out future growth because that projection is harder than the other two and is full of more assumptions 
and it will also require more tracking. Professor Greenwald applies a standard microeconomic concept to earnings growth by suggesting that if a business doesn't have a durable competitive advantage, another Graham concept, which has been very successfully applied to investments by Berkshire Hathaway, if it doesn't have this durable competitive advantage, then competition will come in. You've, you've identified the stock because you think it's going to grow. Competition comes in and eats away at the business's growth because of the lack of a durable competitive advantage. And the company and its stock price won't grow. And you will not receive the benefits that you anticipated. Assessing anticipated growth in Greenwald's model is a more detailed process than what we did with the discounted cash flow process outlined in podcast 29. Discounted cash flow is still valid, but Greenwald's growth analysis tools are more refined and they deserve their own podcast so that you can clearly see the differences between the two and select which one you like for your investment analysis. So again, I'll do that in the next podcast. Let me give you an example of one detail of Greenwald's analysis that will give you a sense of the level of detail and why we want to cover this separately. Let's say that you have the belief Apple will grow. You then ask the question, in order to project that growth, I need to figure out how much the growth is going to cost. How much money is Apple going to spend to ensure that future earnings match current earnings? That's not a two-minute question. So I'll cover that in my next podcast. In the meantime, if you find Professor Greenwald's work interesting and you want more detail that I'm providing, I recommend the book Value Investing from Graham to Buffett and Beyond, Greenwald and Kahn, published by Wiley, 2022. Okay, to sum it up, one way to include margin of safety when valuing a company for investment is to follow Professor Bruce Greenwald's method of valuing assets, secondly, valuing current earnings, and finally, valuing future earnings growth, all three separately. This method is in contrast to the discounted cash flow valuation method we discussed in podcast 29 that looks at future cash flows only. Now, because of some remarks and feedback from listeners, Let's talk about how savings and investing need to be looked at within our margin of safety telescope as similar and include loss aversion bias as part of that discussion. When I began talking about margin of safety in podcast 28, I did not include savings accounts and certificates of deposit in the discussion, and I should have. The main guiding principle of financial frameworks is to cause people to ask the question over and over what does something cost and what is it worth? The analysis should include all alternatives. A savings account or a CD is an investment. However, unlike a stock or a bond that you might be selling before maturity, a person's principal is guaranteed in the savings account or CD. But I should still ask the question, what is the cost and what is the worth of me putting my money in a savings account or a certificate of deposit and not just asking the questions, what's the rate and what's the term? While assuming that my principal will not decrease. 
In most cases, we usually say that we want the money as a savings account or a short-term CD so that we have access to those funds. And secondly, expect a guaranteed return as stated in the savings account terms or the CD terms. And third, want or need the specific amount committed to those accounts for rainy day use or as a buffer for a variety of purposes. And we want to have that specific number, 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000. We want to have that specific number in our mind. Having that specific amount, again, 500, 1,000, 5,000, of principle guaranteed is in our mental balance sheet. At the same time, you and I understand that by putting funds in a savings account, we are giving up the opportunity to possibly earn more from another type of investment. So why do we do this? Why do we give up that opportunity? What is our thinking? In my case, I want to know that the savings or CD funds will not diminish. I understand that much. But how clear am I in my choice of the savings account versus an investment? How clear am I in what exactly is my comfort level? The answer to this question, because I do want to be clear, has been emerging from recent research done over the last 10 to 15 years, and it is called loss aversion bias. My non-academic definition of loss aversion bias is people are more afraid of losing something they own or want than gaining something of equal value, and they therefore require a greater reward than the amount of the potential loss to make a commitment. The primary proponents of loss aversion theory are Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They've outlined it very clearly in a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Kahneman and Tversky add two following conditions as part of loss aversion behavior. Number one, the amount of loss aversion for a person has a reference point and is emotionally subjective. A loss might be not getting something that you expected, like a raise, or a gain can occur when a benefit or a financial reward was not expected, but it happened and therefore it seems greater because there was no expectation. So loss aversion bias is subjective, but it does have a reference point. Number two, there are levels of sensitivity. For example, the difference between $1,900 and $2,000 for most people is much smaller than the difference between $100 and $200. In short, I might be willing to settle for financial gains than I might have achieved elsewhere when applying a financial framework because my aversion to loss guided my thinking and it limited my research or it narrowed my perspective. I need to be aware of that. I need to be as rational as possible when making a choice. Financial frameworks, as I have said repeatedly, believes that everyone should be measuring cost versus worth whenever possible. And rule number two here is be as clear as you possibly can be. For example, if you have a high loss aversion bias, and I know a person who thinks that any investment paying above 5% interest is too risky and will not commit any funds to an investment paying more than 
This person believes that to the core of his soul, the tips of his toes, and in his bones. So my job as an advisor and a teacher was not to talk him in or out of his beliefs, although I did present arguments, largely statistical, that certain investments could provide a higher gain with very little risk. My task and my responsibility as a teacher was to cause him to be as clear as possible about the financial elements of his choices and to understand things like loss, aversion, bias, and to include them in his framework. Beyond that, his choices are elements of his life to live. So my point to you is to be aware of loss, aversion, bias when selecting different paths of your wealth-building journey and fit the pieces of your financial puzzle into a margin of safety framework, remembering that savings accounts, bonds, CDs, and stocks are all points on a continuum. My next podcast will continue the discussion of valuing a business using Professor Greenwald's model. We'll focus primarily on earnings and future growth earnings assessment in the context of margin of safety and his overall value investing process. The second part of the podcast will talk about resources on the internet that can assist you in applying this model or similar models so that you don't have to do all of the work yourself. Thank you for listening to Financial Frameworks. I hope that this has been useful to you, and I look forward to bringing you more tools to translate concepts into actions that produce sustainable earnings. If you feel that this has been helpful, please recommend it to a colleague. Mike Lehan, Financial Frameworks.